good morning or good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to Pazina's 2024 uh, Outlook for Value webinar. My name is Adrian Jackson. I'm based here in London looking after a number of our clients. I'm delighted to be joined by my two colleagues from New York, Dan and John. Hi, guys. Uh, I want to start with a few pieces of housekeeping, please. Um, we've got some prepared comments to start us off with. Uh, we're then going to open up to your questions at the end. Uh, even though the questions are at the end, uh, by all means, feel free. In fact, I encourage you to do so. Uh, ask them throughout the webinar by just clicking the button at the bottom of your screen. Um, I'm going to be moderating the questions, and hopefully we'll get to yours. Uh, if we don't, or if we don't cover something uh, as fully as you would like, uh, please do get in touch with us. For that, uh, and also for a link to the webinar if you want it afterwards, uh, just drop an email to your regular Pazina contact or an email to info at pazina.com. Uh, for those that don't know us, just a brief introduction. We are entering our 29th year of business. Um, we, as at the end of December, uh, managed $61.1 billion of assets using one investment philosophy and one investment process. Uh, we're a global deep value manager known for our commitment and dedication to classic value investing throughout an investment cycle. Uh, probably what we're best known for is that we've stuck to our knitting throughout our entire firm history uh, and that we do so in a disciplined and systematic way. Uh, before kind of getting onto the content, just an introduction to, to Dan and John. Uh, John Getz is one of our co-founders, a co-CIO, and a co-portfolio manager on our global, our US, uh, sorry, excuse me, global, Europe, non-US, and Japanese portfolios. Um, Dan joined us in 2016 as a research analyst, and at the start of 2022, took over from Rich Pazina as one of the co-PMs on our focus value strategy. He still, though, does keep some ownership of some uh, sectors for us, and at the moment looks after various parts of industrials and some of the universal banks. So without further ado, let's get into the material. And John, I want to start with you, if we can, please. Before looking at the outlook for the 2024, Let's just take a you know, bit of a look back at 2023. Um, and a question I want you to start off with is how do we as value investors manage to keep our focus when over the last 12 months, value was behind the market about a thousand basis points? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, thanks for that. And Adrian, as you said, to start off, just reminding all the clients that, that, are, that are here as well, maybe some people don't know us as well. We, we manage very focused, concentrated portfolios around the world. And the goal is not to match an index. Uh, so the index uh, nonsense, as I'll call it, it was a crazy year, 2023 in hindsight, if you look at an index. So as you said, Adrian, you know, clearly the value index trailed globally by around 10%, which is you know near a record level of difference between a growth index and a value index on a global basis. Most of that, however, is in the United States. Dan's going to talk about the craziness uh, in, in the indices in, in the United States. Uh, the good news, what I'll share is, despite it being a bad value year from an index standpoint, uh, it was really a good to great year uh, for us at Pazina based on stock selection. So thank goodness we're not trying to track an index uh, because we did very well relative to these value indices, which did suffer. And by good, good to great, I would say, you know, amazingly, you know, we started with all these concerns at the start of 2023. And it turns out for our value portfolios, it was anywhere from good by that. I mean, around a 12% return to great 
uh, we had portfolios uh, just in, sex, in, in excess of 30% uh, in the emerging markets. So really, when we look back at 2023, it'll go down as a great year for Pazine Investment Management, but a lousy year from a value index standpoint. So there, the big point there to make is that we are not trying to, uh, you, we're more comparable to a value index, but we're not trying to track a value index. And we try to make our money on specific stock selection uh, and you could look back at this last year and say that was pretty darn good. But now getting to the point, uh, the reality is it was a crazy bad uh, year for value index relative to, to growth. And that's mainly a U.S. issue with the Magnificent Seven. So I think the best thing we can do here is turn over to, to Dan and have him talk a little bit about uh, that craziness uh, in the U.S. market. Dan? Sure, sure. So the main theme I would I would point to as far as the returns in the U.S. market last year would be concentration. So really, if you look at the broader market index, it was only a handful of stocks that drove pretty much the bulk of the of, of the performance. Uh, so as you mentioned, the, the Russell 1000 value had had quite a poor year, it actually underperformed the broader index by 1500 basis points. It's one of the worst years on record. Um, but the broad index if you dissect what drove the returns, it was really the top 10 contributors, which include the Magnificent Seven that you referenced. Um, on average, the top 10 contributors more than doubled, and they drove more than 60% of the overall index performance. Um, and where that leaves us today is a pretty interesting dynamic from a concentration standpoint. So the broad index now has about 30% of its weight in this one concentrated cohort, which is a record going back at least 45 years, as far back as we have the data. Um, and then not only has it has it left the broad market index with a lot of concentration, but it's actually really skewed the value index. So the way we define value at Pazina is we'll look at only the bottom quintile on our valuation metric of, of price to normal. If you look at the Russell 1000 value index now, so the, the broad universe is a thousand names, the Russell 1000 value has 844 names in it. So more than 80% of the broad index now gets fit into the value bucket, according to the style, the, the style index. But the reason that's the case is because you're effectively, the index are being constructed to try to have roughly equal market cap weightings across the two indices. So when you have such concentration in a handful of stocks that have giant market caps and giant valuations, you end up having most of the universe then in the other bucket. Um, so, so one point that we would make around this is, you know, while value underperformed, um, buying a value index is actually a tricky proposition at this point because what are you actually getting? You're not getting the first quintile valuation. You're getting 80% plus of the universe. So that's that's kind of the starting point of where where we are today after after John, as you described, a, a pretty pretty wild year from an index perspective. That's interesting. So, John, how do things look outside the U.S.? Yeah, very, uh, very interesting. I mean, let's just remind ourselves that going into 2023, outside the United States was a pretty dark, depressing uh, place, right? You came out of COVID. We thought the world was going to start working. Then we had the invasion of Ukraine, ran up gas prices to record levels in Europe. Uh, and China has really not come out of COVID. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about China in a little bit, but just to give you the craziness of that, 
while we had this wonderful year from a global equity market, certainly in the United States, if you own the Magnificent Seven, one of your best years ever uh, in history. And meanwhile, China is 20% lower than COVID uh, valuations, 20% lower than COVID. The US has doubled since COVID. So you've had massive valuation moves across the across the world. Europe was dark and Japan was, I call it a little bit dark at the beginning of 2023, meaning low valuations based upon depressing outlooks. So you could argue that uh, the beginning of 2023 was recession type uh, valuation and perspective outside the United States. And we had a bit of a rebound uh, from that uh, depressing state. Uh, I'll talk some more in a minute about you know where where we think we're going, but what suffice it to say that because the valuations were so compressed, where we hang out in this first quintile that Dan alluded to, outside the United States, those valuations were so depressed that the lift we saw in valuation and the portfolios didn't take us to um, you know high valuations. It took us from really low to low valuations in that first quintile. Let me make a point about that because we're gonna talk about equity risk premium uh, a bit in terms of is it safer to be in bonds today than, than equities. We're writing a whole newsletter. So those of you on this call that are on our distribution list or you can go to our website, the newsletter is all about, okay, we have equity risk premiums contracting uh, to, to you know relatively low in historical sense, but that's this US phenomenon again of, of the top 10 stocks. To invert that and say, well, what are you expecting from equities? Um, what I'll point out is one way to look at that is from a yield perspective. If you compare earnings to the stock price, where are we uh, in terms of a yield? And even though uh, we would agree that if you looked at the US market, that your expected return is low. That's because the stock price is so high and you're starting with a low yield. In the first quintile outside the United States, those earnings yields are still double digit. So uh, unlike saying, oh shoot, now bonds are 4%, how am I gonna beat that? I will say in the cheapest quintile outside the United States, it's not that hard to have a wide margin between your expected yield and the yield on a fixed uh, instrument like a treasury bond. So that's that's the thing. The story is started 2023 low. Yes, we made, you know, 20% in a lot of these portfolios outside the United States, but that didn't take you to uh, excessive valuations. That's the the main point. I'll, I'll get back to the individual geographies in China uh, a little bit later. Okay. Thanks, John. Dan, let's come back to the US if we can, please. Um, you've got interest rates moving up higher higher valuations. How do we think about the relative attractiveness of stocks versus bonds coming to John's point there? Uh, no, it's 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 a great question. And I, I think one one thing I would point out is it depends on how you want to define the market. So if you look at stocks and, and you define that as the broad index, um, you're right. The equity risk premium uh, has come down quite a lot, actually, when 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 you take the average of the market. But as I mentioned, the market's become pretty concentrated. So we we've done some work around this, and we actually looked at we looked at the equity risk premium and what that means for five year forward asset returns in different environments. Um, and what we found was, you know, first of all, starting point today, we're actually in the bottom third um, of observations over a very long time period. I think we looked at sixty years of data. And historically, when you're in that bottom third, 
uh, bonds do tend to outperform stocks. So on average, bonds had outperformed by something like 60 basis points. But, and I think this is really, really the important point here, that's been driven historically entirely by substantial underperformance of expensive stocks. So when we look at the expensive cohort of stocks historically, when you're in these periods of low, low equity risk premium, they underperform bonds by around 250 basis points annually. Uh, value stocks, on the other hand, actually perform great historically in environments where you have a low, a low equity risk premium. And, and you know, our hypothesis would be it's because of what John was, was referencing that you do have a superior earnings yield. So history says that in, in, in periods where you have low equity risk premium, value stocks actually outperform bonds by more than 500 basis points annually, even though the overall market uh, may not provide the, the greater return. So let me, let me, um, let me just connect a couple, a, a couple of these points. So I was stating before that we have record levels of concentration in the index, which just mathematically is driven by a small number of very, very expensive stocks, which is kind of skewing the overall market. Um, that's the starting point of that cohort, which historically does not so well in this environment. And value tends to actually perform better in an environment where the starting point is, is this cheap relative to other asset classes. And the way that we've gotten here is quite simple. Uh, value stocks didn't receive any tailwind from multiple expansion in, in the last cycle. So we've seen some of the high flyers get to kind of record levels on, on valuation metrics. And the, the first quintile where, where, where we hunt has basically not gotten any multiple expansion at all. It's, a, it's a, the same attractive earning yields that they've, they've kind of always been at historically. So, um, you know, so really you have a market that looks expensive when you, when you take into account the concentration levels that, that we're at today. Um, but the spread between what's loved, which is driving the market valuation, the love stocks are more loved than they've, than they've been on average historically. And the value stocks that, that we look at, the unloved, are just as distrusted as they've, they've always been. And we think presenting a uh, pretty good opportunity for, for double-digit earnings yields going forward. John, coming back to you, if we can, uh, a question I think is on everyone's minds, China. Uh, you and I, with Akil, did a podcast uh, just last month. Can you just summarize our thoughts on China for, for the listeners, please? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, just to put that out, Akhil Subramanian and I did a little podcast on China uh, and went over some specifics uh, about the, the valuation opportunity. Uh, I will tell you that low valuation comes from controversy. Right. Uh, as I like to tell even our youngest analysts when they join, there's no stock in the first quintile in our screening tool that looks safe and wonderful. Uh, thus, we call them the unloved. Uh, there's a reason for that. So the controversy in China has multiple reasons. Geopolitical. Right. Are the U.S. and, and, and China basically misaligned? We're going to fight each other to the death for the next 500 years. Uh, you know, the second is really the economy in, in China, where the economy has been weak and limping, really, uh, since COVID. Uh, so that's that's very dark. And then last but not least, you have what, what is an ongoing concern about the internal dynamics of regulation and China beating up on companies and kind of the, the classic, it's you're, you're run by a, a socialist slash communist uh, central control body, that can't be good. Uh, so, so I think those controversies are there. I think the economy has done very poorly, uh, and that has resulted in this big 
valuation disparity. By that, I mean stocks getting halved in China relative to the rest of the world just over the last five to six years. Think about that for a second. Like that's just a dramatic drop. If you try to come to the math of it and say, okay, well, how bad is it? I will remind everyone that's really what's created this deceleration is we've gone from an 8% expected GDP growth in China during the boom years to now thinking about population decline and, and what should GDP be. But a low expectation for GDP in China is three, just to give you a sense of the the, the outlooks that, that, that people will give you. Uh, well, three is what we're used to in the developed world. So I think it's a little bit silly to think China will undergrow uh, Europe or the United States or Japan. All of us eventually have declining population problems and all the other problems around the world. So so let me just say that, uh, that the valuations are, are very attractive. And we spent some time uh, in our podcast uh, giving you some uh, specific examples there. Um, the the other thing I'll say about that that situation with with, with China and the controversy there uh, is we do need to be cognizant as we are uh, of the the I'll call it the macro issues and we certainly want to make sure we're buying stocks that are uh, appropriately adjusted from a risk uh, valuation standpoint. Uh, I could spend more time on that, but I think I'll just pause there. Uh, Adrian, and say that we're finding more controversy and opportunity in China today than we were, say, five years ago when China itself was loved. Okay. You mentioned stocks there because that's, be frank, that's what it's all about, right? And I think a lot of these ideas come to life a lot more when we kind of talk through a name. Can you just kind of go through one of the names we're thinking of at the moment? Something sure, kind of sure. Bring some of this to life, please. Yeah, yeah. For this one, you know, I think I'll, 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 I'll go with something that's kind of at the center of not only the, the the global controversy, but the China specific, which is something that people deem to be housing related. It's a company called Hire, which makes appliances. So think of uh, small air conditioning units, refrigerators, washing machines, that kind of household appliance. Well, clearly, if new housing units collapse by 50 percent, uh, clearly there are fewer uh, washing machines going into apartments right now than there were a couple of years ago. And that's obviously created the deceleration uh, in, in sales for, for the appliance manufacturers. You know, what we like about Hire Smart Home, which is what the, the real name of the company is, is how well positioned they are to out-earn competitors. So it's really a competitive uh, position argument that we have uh, for the company. Uh, I always like to say, just because we're hunting in the first quintile, doesn't mean we're trying to buy badly positioned businesses. We're actually trying to buy well-positioned companies. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about uh, why hire is well-positioned. In this slowdown, uh, the reality is because they play uh, in the higher end, uh, appliances, mostly people upgrading their appliances, if you will, from super cheap to moderately uh, expensive, I'll call it, uh, in places like a Shanghai apartment. The reality is they're a little less uh, exposed to the third tier city debacle in the housing industry than competitors. Thus, they meet one of the requirements we like. Good balance sheet, better position than competitors to gain share through the trough, through the darkness. Uh, one of the things we like to look at is what does bad look like and we like to measure it. 
so in this case, we know higher is doing better than the weaker competitors in taking share as we sit here. We just met with them uh, in China last week, actually. So it's all fresh in our minds because uh, we were just there. But you know, the reality is that higher is gaining share and is better positioned than com competitors. So the longer this pain goes on, kind of in a way, the better it is uh, for them them in the long run. But big controversy, they're in the real estate area, right? They, they uh, make appliances which can be viewed as commodities. The other little wrinkle in this is that they are underperforming relative to some competitors in the United States simply because they bought the GE brand. They are, if you go into Home Depot or Lowe's in the United States, those of you that are here or, or into the, the big uh, do-it-yourself DIY uh, stores around Europe, you know, you will see uh, GE appliances. That's not GE, that's higher. And they have done a good job of lowering the cost structure for those GE branded appliances while providing the high quality and the premium uh, appliance areas. So that's part of the thesis here is they actually have a good global position, well positioned from a cost standpoint versus the global competitors uh, like a Whirlpool, for example. So we we're really a fan of the companies trade, you know, trades at less than eight times what we think the more normalized earnings are. It's just that they're impacted by this, I'll call it significant Chinese recession. So so pretty excited by buying a leading company on a global basis, you know, at a, at a ridiculously low valuation. I'll, I'll pause there. I'll, I'll try not to bore everyone with too many no, 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 uh, stock no, no. Well, that's, I think it's a good, good summary. Uh, Dan, come on, let's go for a name with you if we can. Uh, something from the, the large cap US portfolio, please. Yeah, sure. So, so one, one name that we added to the portfolio in uh, the back half of 2023 is Baxter, which makes critical medical products and and really, you should you just think about this company. They're providing a lot of a lot of stuff that the healthcare system basically needs to function. So they're uh, a leader in IV bags, as an example. They have seventy percent market share, um, and that's a, a a really strong, well positioned business. If you think about from the hospital's perspective, you can't do a two hundred fifty thousand dollar surgery and get that reimbursement if you're missing your very cheap bag of fluid. So it's it's critical product. Um, dominant position in that in that product line, um, it, it, very important to the overall functioning of our of our healthcare system. So really well positioned business. Uh, now, really the opportunity and the reason we added to the portfolio originally, it arose from inflationary pressures. So the company was doing about two to two and a half billion of operating profit before we started experiencing a spike in raw material costs and transportation costs uh, that that's that started to hit their P and L. And what's unique about Baxter relative to some of the other players in the sector is some of their products, like the, the example I just gave on, on IV bags, they, they tend to be a little bit more um, sensitive to some of these cost inputs. And a lot of these products are being sold into group purchasing organizations where you'll have multi-year contracts with fixed pricing that didn't necessarily protect Baxter from this type of inflationary spike that if we went back a few years ago, Nobody was worried about rampant inflation, so uh, so they hadn't necessarily priced their their business for the type of environment that they found themselves in coming out of COVID. So what what we see happening from here, um, we do expect margins to start to recover because number one, some of the cost pressures have already started to go the other way. You can look at indices and see transportation costs or some of the raw materials that hit that hit them are improving, um, and as their contracts with their group purchasing organizations reset in the coming years, they're going to start to price themselves differently. So this was the original thesis where we started started buying the, the stock. 
Then we got a second bite at the apple actually pretty soon after initiating our, our original position. So one business line they have is at-home dialysis machines. Now, one thing we've learned through our research is this is actually quite a small percentage of Baxter's overall earnings. It's a, it's a lower margin product line for them versus the rest of their portfolio. Um, but, but in October, the stock got hit pretty hard because there were headlines that, um, that GLP-1s were proven to slow the advancement of kidney disease. So the market started to fear that there was going to be this major demand destruction for that product line. And amazingly, the enterprise value of Baxter declined materially more than the entire earnings contribution from the kidney care business, which is pretty astonishing. So we we used that opportunity actually to add to the, the position at that point. Um, and, and really, we, just, we think the risk reward for Baxter at this price is, is pretty exceptional. So currently, the margins are starting to recover, but are still quite low relative to their, their own history. And you're getting a high single digit earnings yield. So if, if Baxter can't repair any of the issues that they've they faced over the last few years with inflationary pressure, you're still going to get a high single digit earnings yield. Um, and in reality, we see a pretty clear path towards them starting to manage the business better than they did prior to the inflationary shock. So they've now gone in and started resegmenting their business and trying to get better understanding of product level costs so they can price better with the GPO. So we, we actually think they're going to come out of this with a much stronger operating model than they did before they had this inflationary shock. Um, and if we're wrong, you get a high single digit earnings yield. Uh, and if they're able to repair their earnings stream somewhere closer to history, uh, you're going to be far into the double digits. Uh, so we think that's a that's a, a pretty exciting opportunity, particularly for a company that's so well positioned and you know, serves a growing end market. John, coming back to you, um, outside the U, some comments about the world outside the U.S., excluding China now, if you can, please. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, you know, Dan Dan brings up a really good point. What we're looking for, you know, in Baxter, we're finding something that's quite different than other things in the portfolio. And I'll just mention, even outside the United States, we've seen this incursion into the first quintile as some of the energy stuff worked over the last couple of years. Energy was the one, only sector that worked in 2022, basically. So, you know, as that worked, healthcare uh, has been a big opportunity. Uh, and that's true in our European uh, portfolio in particular, uh, that healthcare, and, and there it's not just pharma, but also things like Fresenius, which, which ironically is also in the dialysis business, which was hurt by, by this scare, if you will, that no one's going to be on dialysis anymore. So, so there's a lot going on in healthcare, but I'm going to go to a classic just because it's a big position that hasn't worked out and typifies start what starting with really low valuations looks like. I'm going to actually talk about a tire company because a tires are part of the automobile industry in investors' minds. And therefore, is it's a massive controversy, right? This whole transition to EV and it's cyclical and it's yucky and 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 all that negativity. And then if you think about the tire business hit by COVID, bad supply chain stuff, then hit by the invasion of Ukraine, which was also a supply chain problem, as well as rat ratcheting up the cost of raw materials. A lot of energy goes into tire making, natural gas uh, prices went up, and that's a lot of the energy in the plants. For making tires in Eastern Europe, so it was just a, one disaster after another. I call it Murphy's Law. You know, everything that 
that could go wrong, went wrong. Uh, and yet we're sitting here buying Michelin again. You know, if you look at the price you're paying for future earnings, a double digit earnings yield uh, that that in a company that's better positioned for EV transition than any other tire company in the world that exists because all these other things have hit. It's been so hard that we're able to buy the leader in the EV transition, if you will, because of the excess, uh, not the excess, the, the R&D they put into it early, probably because they're European based and they they were more into EVs than, say, the United States uh, or Japan was uh, in, in the automobile market and China. So they're kind of researching what are the demands on the future of tires for automobiles in the EV world. I'll just leave it there that they're better positioned than the competition for the long run. But we had all this short-term disruption, pain, and fear uh, that created value, op uh, value opportunity uh, in, in, in a tire company. And even though it's up, it just started at this ridiculously low valuation. That's why I, I thought maybe that would be interesting to, to some of our listeners uh, to think about uh, how that typifies some of the valuation points we've been making. Okay, um, we've got a lot, bit of time. So Dan, um, open up to Q&A in a second. There's a few questions um, for us to come to. Um, but let's come back to you for one more name, if we can, please. Uh, we're overweight financials uh, across the board, pretty much. Um, if you can just go through a bank quickly, and I'm, I'm asking you for bank because, you know, value managers typically don't invest in banks because they're complicated, take a lot of time. Uh, we have a few number of banks in our portfolio. So can you just pick one of our bank holdings to talk through, please? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'll, I'll mention one specific name, but one, one thing I'll point out about our, our overall financial exposure, um, yeah, I really have, have two points. So one is financials are a pretty attractive asset class from a, a valuation standpoint. So the, the average bank in the U.S. is trading at 10 times earnings. Um, so if you compare that to the non-financial part of the universe, it's trading twice the multiple. So the starting point of valuation for the asset class is pretty attractive. And then the other point I'll make is, while it is it does seem like a fertile hunting ground, this industry, given the starting point of valuation, for the most part, the investments that we're making in financials and banks in particular have a company-specific element to them. So we're not just buying the industry because the industry looks cheap statistically. We're actually making investments where um, we see something unique about that particular company. So with that, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Citigroup, which is a, a large holding for us in, in our U.S. portfolios. So really, if you look at Citigroup, we think there's an underappreciated strong franchise here. Um, we think it's one of the it, it's it's one of the premier corporate banks globally. Um, and they actually have dominant market share in what they call trade and treasury solutions, by far the biggest player globally. So really strong deposit franchise, um, deeply embedded with their customers that need to move. And think of their typical customer as a multinational company that needs to, to, to move money between different geographies and handle operating accounts across regions globally. You know, City has an unmatched global footprint to do this um, and really embeds themselves tightly with these customers. So it's a pretty attractive franchise overall. Now the company's had a number of issues over, over the years that, that have been well publicized that have, have weighed on the company's returns. And what we see today is a CEO who took over over the last couple of years and has set City on a different path to try to fix some of the historical issues that have weighed on the returns of this portfolio that frankly should produce 
better results than they have historically. Um, so they're doing a couple of different things within Citi. So number one, they have simplified the portfolio and have exited some of the international consumer markets that that complicated the overall bank and didn't necessarily make sense from a returns perspective. Um, and on top of that, the company began really a couple of years ago, a major investment wave to try to update and improve a lot of its basic operations. So where we sit today, I said the average bank trades at 10 times earnings. Citigroup's trading at a material discount to the average bank in, in, in the US. It's trading more like eight times current earnings. But the PL is burdened by a cost increase of $11 billion from where they were pre-COVID levels. So a lot of banks in, in the space are actually over-earning because you had a big increase in, in interest rates, um, which flowed into their, into their revenue line. Um, where a city is uniquely under-earning because they've had this major increase in their operating expenses. And the good news is the operating expenses have now peaked. So currently the earnings stream is burdened by this investment for the future. You know, a lot of times we worry that companies are starving the future to produce good results in the short term. City's doing the opposite. They've they've invested to, to yield better results in the future. And the starting point on valuation with this depressed earnings stream is still much cheaper than, than everything else um, in the sector. So we, we think that's a pretty attractive um, starting point on valuation that you're still getting a double digit earnings yield today, even if it just keeps limping along with low returns. And the reality is Citigroup right-sizing their cost base over the next few years is going to be a much bigger variable to benefit the return stream um, than any other macro fears that we may have, such as rising credit costs or something like that. They're going to get more benefit from, from the cost reductions that's uh, that, that's starting to come now in 2024. So uh, so we, we think that's a pretty attractive starting point for Citi. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. We're going to, answer, we're going to open up to questions. I've got a, a few here, not a ton, but uh, let's keep us busy. Um, I'm going to start with this one, I think. AI, uh, I think it's kind of an obvious question, but interesting. What do you think the impact of AI will be on your business, both from how it affects your companies and how it affects your business? Um, who wants to kind of lead off with that? And both have I'll, a let, I'll let Dan lead off with that because he's, he's you know, on the young end, so he knows all about uh, <laughs> new and emerging technologies. Okay, Dan. What's, what, what's funny about this is, is uh, those who know me, uh, more personally, realize I'm not very tech savvy, but uh, but that's uh, that's okay. I'll still I'll, I'll still answer the question. You know, it's it's you know, one one close relationship we have on the corporate side um, is you know with a company that's kind of at the forefront of trying to implement a lot of the artificial intelligence initiatives at some of the Fortune 500 companies. So think about you know IT services companies that are now trying to use artificial intelligence as a reason to engage with their customers and start big IT projects. And they use they use the word AI synonymously with automation, which I think is is pretty interesting starting point. So so they're not saying every company's now already figured out how to dramatically transform their business using this technological breakthrough. What they're seeing is companies starting to experiment with ways to make themselves more efficient and start automating some of the processes that they've historically had to do on a more manual basis. Now, we could argue is the pace of advancement in this automation journey a bit faster now with it, with AI versus history, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, but I would argue that a lot of industries have been on this automation journey 
for the last 100 years. Uh, I mean, I remember when I first started covering industrials, I looked at at uh, so, some of the automation companies and, and I remember learning about process automation versus discrete automation that people weren't mixing chemicals by hand um, for the last 70 years. We figured out how to automate that. So I think this is, this is an important tool in this journey that a lot of companies are on, um, but it's still very early days. Companies are figuring out how to do it. And it's really you know, one continuation of a, of a trend that's been prevalent in corporate America for a very long time. So may, may pick up the pace of the, of, of the automation trend, but it's, it's certainly not um, something that, that is, you know, uh, we've never seen a technological breakthrough before that's gonna, gonna change business models. So something we're cognizant of, um, but still very early days, I think. Yeah, and just, just adding to that, obviously we'll do the work on, is AI for a specific company we're looking at a friend or foe? Because there will be industries where new foes will appear because of AI, uh, whereas I would say most, to Dan's point, most companies, if you talk to them, and we've been obviously talking about AI with most of our holdings, most of them see it as a cost reduction uh, slash automation incremental opportunity. And then you just have to make sure the companies we own aren't somehow asleep at the switch uh, in terms of reducing costs relative to competitors. And anything regarding our business and AI, rather than just our portfolio holdings? Oh, ultimately, I mean, ultimately, we will find the ways to use AI to improve our efficiency uh, in our discovery. Now, what I will point out just to, to people that are worried about stock-specific research, you have to realize that AI, to some extent, is an internet scraper who does it really, really quickly and efficiently. When we go into controversies, our job at Pazina is not to believe what the data says currently or what people believe generally okay. and generally has some databases right negative momentum is real so so when something starts going bad uh ai scraping will find that bad quickly so my instinct is it will speed things up a little bit but our the uniqueness of discovery that 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 we're trying to get to and how should it work longer term uh i'm pretty confident that that that's hard to do with an ai tool but but maybe parts of it, Adrian, to your question. All right. Um, this one may be for you, John. I'm going to pick off here. Um, the, the question is kind of double barreled. Uh, the first part is, are you looking for new investments in Japan right now? Uh, and it leads on with, uh, thank you for this. Is the market in Japan the most interesting that has been over the last decade now with record earnings, the move away from yield curve control and improved capital return and corporate governance? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, good question. Uh, we've been saying for some time on that last point, yes, incrementally, the companies we're talking to, and our goal actually is to invest where the company's governance, if you will, for using that broad term, is improving rather than worsening. Uh, I've been dealing with Japan for 40 years, actually, even in my prior life. So I'm used to uh, companies thinking 4% return on capital is a good return. Uh, and, and obviously, that's not a good return from our perspective. So it's driven a lot of dysfunctional decision-making over the years. Uh, and we're looking for companies that really are investing with a, a goal of having a good return on invested capital. And we've been rifle shooting that now for, for a number of years in our Japan portfolio, trying to find those companies that are better positioned to give a good return right, to, to uh, their business uh, going forward. Now, in terms of what happened last year, I'll just update 
people on that. Clearly, the opportunity to buy into improving earnings is always there, and we like that aspect of Japan. And we have found multiple restructuring opportunities over the years. Um, you know, from Fujitsu to Sony to you know a number of other companies that have restructured uh, in the interest of shareholders. Last year, Warren Buffett showed up and said, "Oh my gosh, Japan is trying to improve itself, and the valuations of the highly liquid, high market cap companies just popped up last year." So, in that sense, the obvious value opportunity was a little bit uncovered last year. Valuations moved up. Where we're finding the opportunity today in Japan is is not those companies that popped up this last year on this thesis that Japan's a better place to invest, but the ones that kind of got left out of that because either there's something going on specific at the company that's deteriorating. We're finding a lot of that in some industrials and materials uh, companies where because they're connected to China, life has actually been harder in 2023 than than you know in pre prior years. So prior years. So so yes, I'm going to agree that generally the opportunity to outperform in Japan, the history of of earnings at a company, uh, if you rifle shoot that, uh, there's a very exciting opportunity in Japan that is continuing. Uh, just a note there uh, on that. Uh, the other aspect of Japan, of course, is is coming out of deflation and having positive interest rates. That's obviously been an opportunity there as well uh, in the financial system to get from negative absolute rates, you know, to Dan's point earlier, get from there actually negative uh, interest rates to positive interest rates uh, was helpful. Okay. Um, Dan, I think I'm going to throw this one at you and if John wants to take it. Um, the question is how extreme are the, how extreme are the value spreads versus history? Is anything different now versus the last decade that might help them finally contract meaningfully? <laughs> Exclamation mark. <laughs> that's a good one. I think that's someone who's lived with the value paid for the last 10 years. Go ahead, it's someone who's anonymous. So I won't even get a phone full up after this, but yes, thank you for that question. Yeah. Yeah. So spreads are very wide. So the way that we, we measure this is we look at the spread of the first quintile on valuation where, where we invest relative to the fifth quintile. So you can think of that as unloved stocks versus loved. Um, and we we look at that data over history expressed as far as standard deviations. That's not to say the cheapest quintile should be the same price as everything else. It's saying how much, how much cheaper is the first quintile versus the fifth quintile um, relative to history. Um, and when we look at it today, we're in the 94th percentile. So we're at really historic wide still. And, and you know, I've, I've gotten this question from, from a few clients recently. You know, our U.S. portfolios had pretty good returns last year. Uh, and one of the questions that we've gotten is, does that mean the opportunities passed mm. because, you know, the portfolio was up 20 to 30 percent? So that must mean your stocks are 20 to 30 percent more expensive than they were to start the year. And that's actually not what's happened. So what we found is, and John referenced this earlier, we've seen We've seen new opportunities coming into the unloved part of the market, um, even though some of the some of the stocks that we had coming into the year in 2023 are no longer in the first quintile because their company specific issue either became resolved or was at least resolved in the eyes of the market. So that stock appreciated, but then it's been replaced by other companies that have had unique pain. So one, one example of that in the US would be you know, General Electric, which was our largest holding coming in to start the year in 2023. We're now, we've now dramatically reduced our exposure to General Electric, 
but being replaced with companies like Baxter that experience some of the inflationary pressure a little bit a, a little bit later on. Um, but the overall portfolios, our valuations as a starting point today, don't look that different from where they were a year ago, despite the fact that we had a pretty good good year. So it's really really think of it, our returns can be a function of two things, starting point of valuation and the valuation spread, but then also the timing of resolution of the company's specific controversies that we're underwriting. Um, so it happened to be that even though the value spread stayed very, very wide in 2023, we happened to have a pretty good year because we did get we did get uh, some some positive resolutions of uh, the company specific. Yeah, just, just jumping, just adding to that from a more macro background. If you look back over the last couple of years now, 2022 was a disaster in the U.S. market for growth investors because all of a sudden we woke up and said, uh oh, that 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 40 PE is going to look a lot uglier if bonds return five instead of two. Right. That 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 was the shock of 2022. 2023, as it turns out, we got an AI hope buzz going, which which is still out there, right? In valuation, nothing wrong with that. And I'm telling you to bet against AI. We're just saying you got it, right? In the valuations. And then at the end of the year, we got the interest rate thing going in reverse, where now it's like, oh, good, I can buy a 40 PE stock again because interest rates are going back down. They're no longer going up. So you got an anti-value move there, right? In, in a way, right? Because people's most basic assumption is when interest rates are going down by long duration tech and when interest rates go up by short duration value. But to Dan's point, we've, we've had 10 years of it all, of the water all moving to one side of the tank in valuations. So even if it moves back a little bit to the other side, we're still at these relatively high mathematical differences. That's why we're we're highlighting to everyone that's out there listening to consultants say you, you should have an expected return of 6% in your equity portfolio to understand it's an expected return of 6% in your equity portfolio because of the high market caps being high PE. That's what's driving the 6% expected return in these consulting models. Nothing wrong with that. We're gonna agree with that. But where we play in the unloved, that isn't what the situation is. And as Dan alludes to, you also rotate what's in the first quintile. So the chance that all the unloved companies all of a sudden go up in valuation at any one time is very low, right? You don't, you know, there's always companies that are falling out of favor. And, and that's why we like what we do so much, because there's always pain somewhere uh, in the world, in some industry, and obviously we're excited by the new points of pain that we've found. Okay, I think we've time for two more questions. Um, John, you talked about interest rates a couple of times, yeah. uh, but there's a question here, maybe we can kind of flesh out a bit more. Uh, there's a couple of questions to it. It's how will central banks lowering interest rates around the world affect deep value stocks? This is the bit I wanted to focus on if you can, please. Are there any stocks in particular in Pacina portfolios that will be affected? Yeah, well, you know, the, the around the world, you'll see this, you know, clearly uh, people were betting that net interest margins, right, are a function of rising interest rates. And therefore, people were obsessed with uh, trading banks in particular on interest rate expectations. That was overblown in the first place, and it's overblown in the second place. Dan knows all about that. He's our new kind of uh, financial champion. So, so why don't you address the math of the financial system, and then I'll come back to outside of Perfect. the financial system what the impact of interest rates is. 
Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we we did see um, net interest margins expand pretty materially earlier on in the rate hike cycle. And you know, John, to, to John's point, I think this was this was a moment in time where you know a lot of folks have been waiting for interest rates to rise as the opportunity for banks to pro- to to um, you know re-rate, and that was supposed to be the the, the positive earnings driver. Um, and what happened was rates rose much faster and further, I think, than folks expected. And that actually had a negative impact on valuation. So even as a lot of the companies in the in bank land started to generate high profits, in some cases unsustainably high high profits, depending on, on when they had to pass pricing through in their deposit franchise, um, the stock prices never really appreciated because we had a very small number of banks that earlier in the in in the year in 2023 experienced some real stress because they mismanaged their interest rate exposure. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking back to, to uh, the March time frame when we had the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, for example. Um, and and so then it's amazing that the market psychology just shifted. It, we're, we used to think that higher interest rates were this great positive driver for bank valuations. And then all of a sudden overnight, um, after you had a couple example of companies that mismanaged their their interest rate exposure, then all of a sudden the market flipped and now you're looking for lower interest rates to uh, to, to drive better valuations in, in banks. Um, the way we think about it is, is you know, quite simple. So number one, um, we don't think that the problems that that these select number of companies got got themselves into is something that's indicative of the broader space. So Silicon Valley suffered because they had a massive influx of deposits during a very particular, a very friendly environment for them of low interest rates and a lot of free money for venture capital clients. Um, and they plugged those into very long dated assets that would decline um, if interest rates rose. That's not what what how other banks responsibly manage their interest rate risk. Um, so that was really more of a company specific type issue than it was uh, an overall industry issue. And when we look at at the overall overall asset class, we were never perpetuating peak net interest margins for companies that benefited from not having to reprice their deposits as interest rates went up. We always thought about what a normalized environment would look like and and what the valuation looks like relative to that normalized environment. That's always the way we value banks. And that's no different today. So the only thing that's really changed is you had the banks that that properly managed their risk exposures um, have generated some better profits over, over the last year. And the valuations haven't really gone up, even though they've had a couple pretty good earnings yield because this other fear kind of creeped into the system, even though we don't actually see that as as an existential threat for most of these companies. Thank you. Yep. We've had one more just come in. As you let me were, just, let me just. Do you want to add something, John? Sorry. Just jump, because I think we we overplay the interest. Obviously, interest rates and the financials is, is connected and people were worried, oh, interest rates going back down. That was the only chance to make money in financials and value is in financials. Outside of financials, just understand that last year in Europe, we'll just pick on Europe, where the rapid rise of interest rates was labeled a catastrophe for the economy and, and budgets and all that stuff. If you look to the normal part of living life and expense, rising interest rates, particularly if real interest rates are high, uh, so this would be net of inflation, uh, real high interest rates High real interest rates is bad for the economic development and growth in general. All the central monetary authorities worry about that. And that's why I would say outside of the financial system, 
when you look at cyclical industries and recovery from recession, the fact that interest rates have peaked and going back down is actually conceptually good news for the businesses and their customers. Just look at housing, you know, as a simple example. So, so I think the idea that somehow interest rates going back down is a tech play when the valuations are already high is a little bit disingenuous from a mathematical uh, valuation standpoint, but I'll, I'll, I'll drop it there, Adrian. Otherwise, I'll rant some more. No, no, What's no. You can rant around. I should have. I wants to say something. This one just popped up as we were just wrapping up just there. I, I quite like it. I thought it would come up earlier. Uh, we'll make this our last question. Um, it is How is the situation in the Middle East or you, and Ukraine impacting your investment decisions? Yeah. Yeah. That one, that one I want to take. I was just in the Middle East uh, just a month or so ago. Uh, interesting to get perspective right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, to be in the Middle East, uh, I, I was not in Israel. I was I was in other parts of the Middle East. But you know, the reality is, uh, it's always sad when we see this kind of of human dysfunction. I'll call it right uh, in war and and hate between uh, long running hate between uh, groups, et cetera. It's always painful for us as investors. What we have to do is say, okay, uh, what does that mean to us? And that's always a company specific issue always we you know yes we need to know what's going on from a macro standpoint but what we need to figure out is can the company move its wire harness business from the ukraine where they're making a lot of wire harnesses for cars can they move it to somewhere in north africa that was a debate right at a company uh so so we get we get very company specific real fast uh, on on these things like wars and, and incursions. We don't try to outdo the macro of is a war going to expand and hurt global GDP. That I like to say that's above our pay grade from a macro standpoint. We're kind of studying the cases of, for this company specific. Is this a good or a bad thing? Sometimes the market gets it backwards, right? They They think that war is inherently bad for every company. That is not factually true. Uh, so, so that's what we need to get to uh, in the microeconomics, and it has raised some opportunities uh, in our portfolio uh, in in different locations. Uh, I don't want to go into that again, you know, too much company detail maybe for this call, but just leave, I'll leave it there, Adrian. That our job is to say, is this good or bad for this specific company, and is it is the company getting thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak? Okay, I think we're going to wrap things up there. Thanks, Jan. Thanks, John, for your time. Um, hopefully, we've given our listeners lots to think about. Uh, thanks also to my colleagues behind the scene for all their technical and content support. They know who they are. Uh, most importantly, thank you to you, our listeners, or our viewers, I should say, for taking your time. Uh, hope you felt it was time well spent. You've got a few minutes of your day back. As I said at the outset, if we didn't get to your question, or there wasn't a point, there was a few we actually couldn't get to, or there's a point we didn't cover in full, or you want a... Um, a link to the recording of the webinar, get in touch with your regular Pazina contacts or drop an email to info at .com. Thank you again. And enjoy the rest of your day. Hey, hey Adrian, I'm going to add one thank you because uh, this is the biggest audience I'm gonna, I've talked to so far this year. Thank you for those of you that have stuck with the philosophy of creating value through valuation work uh, because, you know, the index was very easy uh, to, to, to buy into and say passive is the only way to participate. Uh, and, and we're happy that finally there's some reward showing up uh, to this very active 
uh, you know, uh, management style. Uh, so I just want to say thank you to the clients on this call. Uh, and we're glad to help you out a little bit in your investment performance uh, in 2023. Thank you all. That's perfect. Thank you, John. Thanks again, Dan. Thank you, everyone.